Daniel chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible with you, there should be a paperback Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you today. No greater gift than the Word of God. Amen? All right. When you get to Daniel chapter 2, please follow along with me. Have your eyes on this passage. We're going to be in verses 31 through 49. 31 through 49. So it's a good chunk, but we will read God's Word up in this mug all day because we love the Word of God. Upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the Word of the Lord, and you can respond with... Awesome. Have your eyes on scripture and follow along with me beginning in verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king of its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom, inferior to you, shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Say amen. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, Westside. We're glad that you're here. And if you're not already awake at 11 a.m., you're definitely awake now after that epic intro. So we are in our sermon series through the book of Daniel. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. And basically the reason why we're going through this Old Testament book is because it's relevant for us today. Daniel is uh, a part of the people of God who are living in exile in a culture that um, basically hates God. 
And so how can you live for God and stand for Christ in a culture that's constantly telling you to compromise on that fact? And today is really sort of part two of what we learned last week. Um, Just to kind of give you a recap, if it's your first time here, we've got our sermons up on the website. You can dive into all of that. But um, basically, King Nebuchadnezzar had some nightmares um, given to him by God. And basically, he couldn't interpret this. And last week, we looked at the idea of King Nebuchadnezzar representing the best technology. I mean, so smart. I mean, the most powerful kingdom ruling over the whole world. Yet, he was still lacking something in his life. And so, what the culture would call wise and powerful, we saw really a character play that that was actually foolish. And then this young Jewish man named Daniel, who's poor, who's a slave, who the culture would call foolish, who doesn't have the technology and the assets to do all of that, was the only person to stand in the king's court. And so we learned that what the culture calls foolish, God chooses to reveal his wisdom through. And we learned last week that's really applicable to us in our lives. I mean, kind of that season and that thing in our life that we think is so dumb. God, if you would just get this out of my life and if I could just get through this season, God's basically telling us, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. That thing in your life that you think is foolish and that you think is weak, I'm actually using that to show you how wise and how strong I am. And this week, maybe as an intro, um, I could start with this. I had the privilege and opportunity to grow up um, a part of my life in the same town that my parents did in Kennett, Missouri. So Kennett, Missouri is hometown of Cheryl Crow and methamphetamines. So that's really cool, right? And if you're from this area, you know that's absolutely true. And um, one of the cool things was I got to go to the same junior high, the same high school, everything as my parents. And so it was fun, kind of. My dad was a little bit of a rebel. And so when they would say my name in class, they would be like, are you Ben Jordan's son? And so that didn't start out for me good and sometimes. But what was a lot of fun was, and maybe you guys know this too, is my parents describing to me what their hometown was like while they were growing up. And so Kennett was a booming farm town when they were growing up. The downtown square on Saturdays was a blast. Dad would say, you know, they would go down and go to um, the pharmacy, get some milkshakes, and then go watch the show, as old people call a movie theater, right? The show. And they would do all kinds of stuff. But there was one area they always talked about, which was booming and awesome. And that was called Tommy's Drive-In Theater. And so Tommy's Drive-In was a bit, and some of you guys may know this and maybe have gone there. Tommy's Drive-In Theater started in the 50s and was a big, big deal. Um, Any Friday or Saturday night, there would be anywhere from 300 cars there. And for those of you who have, you know, younger kids with iPads, it was a, you watched the movie, you drove in and watched the movie, you tune into a radio station, right? And dad said, I mean, it would be packed. And they would even sneak their friends in through the trunk of the car because you had to pay for the amount of people. That, That was before Christ. That was before they left, right? And so it was booming, and it was awesome, and it was a ton, a ton of fun. But what was always hard for me to picture that, because this is what Tommy's drive-in looks like now and what it looked like when I was growing up. I mean, it's, it's like a dump. <laughs> it's just this, like, farm field now and the sign and everything like that, and they sort of keep it there for just a historical site. But it's crazy to think about something that was such a big deal and so much fun. And, you know, you had your first date and you met your future spouse there and everything looks like that nowadays. And that's actually a lot like our passage. 
as Daniel interprets the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful ruler in the known world at the time. And actually, I mean, some of you actually grew up learning about Babylon and the hanging gardens of Babylon and all of that. And there's some 3D rendering of what Babylon would have looked like back in the day. It had irrigation, it had canals, it had architect structures that were beyond just anything that the world had known. But you can actually Google Maps what it looks like today, and that's what it looks like. It's sand and rocks and rubble. And if you would have stood there and told King Nebuchadnezzar, This dream and the interpretation from it, just like Daniel did, nobody would have believed that. They literally ruled the known world. And so if I could sum up our passage today in one sentence, it would be this. All other kingdoms will crumble because only God's kingdom is final. All other kingdoms will crumble. Because only God's kingdom is final. Now, let's bridge a context to your life. The thing that's so important now, the job, the house, the legacy, the engagement, the kids, the this, the that, so important, consumes us. And in reality, what's it going to be like when you die? We like to be real positive here at Westside. Everyone dies. All right, welcome to the 11, right? Like, even think about this. America, right? U.S., we are 264 years old. Like, people have furniture older than that. You know what I mean? But we think it's something that's just going to last forever. And it's why I love the Word of God, because it, it literally puts us in our place. 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, All people are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. All people are like grass and all of their glory. Like think about it. Even the best, the best of any human achievement will fade. I, like many of you this week, turned on the news and learned of the passing of Stephen Hawking's. And just as a side note, as your pastor, um, down with mean Christian posts about like people who didn't believe in God or anything like that, like that's the, the that's just dumb. Okay, if if you do that and you're a part of the church, I'll send you a private message and you'll never come back and anything like that. But like, listen, Christians are known for love, not for being mean. Okay, so that's just a side note. That's not even in my notes. You got that for free today. Okay, but I thought, wow, literally one of the greatest minds ever, like. I, maybe he's dead, maybe he's, maybe he's not, maybe they uploaded his conscious to something, you know what I mean, like got his brain in a jar. Like this guy calculated how like black holes suck in time. I mean, like it's just phenomenal what this guy accomplished. And then I thought about my son Roman and how he's going to learn about him. And at best, he may get a university named after him and he will be a paragraph in a history book. All people are like grass and all of their glory. And what Daniel does is he interprets this dream, and we learn some pretty significant things about this, that all other kingdoms will crumble because only God's kingdom is final. But the first thing that we see in the passage is this. All other kingdoms are fragile. They're fragile. 
Jump up to verse 29, and we learn the context of the dream. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. So, so literally, this is like a Marty McFly dream. This is a dream of the future type of a thing that's happening all at one time. And so God gives King Nebuchadnezzar this dream, and nobody can interpret it. And it's a dream of the future. And in this dream was this towering figure of a man. But this dream represents something. And if you look in verse 32, he sort of breaks down what the image looked like. Now have your eyes on Scripture. Have your Bible in front of you. The head of this image was of fine gold. It's chest and arms of silver, it's middle and thighs of bronze, it's legs of iron, it's feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So we're in ancient literature, right? This is sort of prophetic literature as well. So there's symbolism that's happening. God is using an image to describe something to us. And really, all we have when you look at the end of verse 38 is Daniel says, now you are the head of gold. And then he says other kingdoms will come after this. Now, the early church fathers, Josephus and everybody, sort of knew and and translated those other kingdoms to represent and look like this. History has sort of been played out in this dream, right? So we know that the head of gold represents Babylon. The Bible tells us that. And we know that in 536 B.C., Babylon was sieged by Medo-Persia. And then in 330 B.C., the Greek Empire, it's sort of like the, a cosmic king of the hill battle, right? Like a bunch of like selfish kids shoving each other off the top of the thing, right? So the Greek Empire beat them. And then in 27 BC, the Roman Empire, the Iron Army, right? Brutal. They literally perfected, um, you know, the craftsmanship of iron. They ruled the known world. And then, you know, a lot of people think that the clay feet represent end times and the kingdom to come. Now, listen, I'm fine with that. A lot of scholars believe that, a lot of conservative scholars. But listen, I'm going to challenge you real quick. Question Where's that at in your Bible? Where does Daniel say that, well, clearly this is the meadow person, right? It's, it's not in there. Now, I do believe that this dream has been played out in history, and you need to study your Bible and your pocket protector and your charts and all your string theory and everything like that. That's totally fine. But the image is of a man. Now, listen to me. I think we love and we love conspiracies and, oh, get the charts and graphs out and let's, the end times and, oh, Obama and Trump and, oh, right, you know, all that stuff. And we completely miss what God is even trying to tell us. So the image represents, I believe, humanity. Listen to what one scholar says. It is important to notice that the passage itself gives us virtually no data about the specifics of any of these kingdoms because it intends to give us a philosophy of history and mankind rather than a precise, exact analysis of history. So, what does this image represent of humanity? Well, the first thing I think is very clear is this. Humanity is obsessed with power obsessed with power. You have a kingdom ruling the world. Then another kingdom, right, comes along and 
snuffs them out, and then that kingdom rules, and then that one rules for a period of time. And then it's like a cosmic battle that's taking place here, right? Of who has more, you know, swords and all of that. And, and it's all about power. Because people in the Bible are, that's so old and relevant and outdated, right? I mean, look at us today. It's all about power. It's all about who can slap their name on that first. I mean, listen, like, listen, we went to the moon, bro. You know what I mean, right? And what did we do? We stuck an American flag on that thing, right? America, right? Stamp, we own this too, right? The Space Force. and all. Anyway, that's a different thing, right? I mean, it's, I mean, it's all about who can, I mean, who can achieve and do all of that first. Now, let's break it down in your life. Why do you have the relationships that you have? Why do you go to this party and this event and we got to be there and we got to mingle and we got to let them, right? Why did you marry who you married? Why do your kids go to the school where they go? We are all struggling for significance and power in our life. And I think there's a deeply profound, beautifully theological movie that can help us with this. And that's called The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Profound, profound insights, right? But one of the characters in The Amazing Spider-Man 2 is played by an actor, Jamie Foxx. And the character is called Electro. And it starts out as this sort of nerdy scientist guy who keeps just getting shoved to the side. No one likes him. People are rude to him. He's mistreated. And he, and he suffers from envy of Spider-Man. He's obsessed with him. In the movie, he actually says, I wish I was like him. I wish I was the amazing Spider-Man. But through a science experiment gone wrong, he lives and breathes off of power. And so in the city, he goes around and he's sucking power anywhere where it's available and he's draining it. And the more that he drains, the more powerful that he gets. And as I'm watching this movie with my son, I'm going, oh my goodness, they're teaching us about humanity. Because I know people like that who enter into this relationship and suck all of the power out of it and all of the significance and then move on to another relationship. And then I'm at this job and then I got a problem with this boss and so now I got to go to this job and this and that. It's also why we have a bunch of boys who can shave and not men. Men are actually marrying older now. They're postponing being married because they're afraid of commitment because it's all about dating and it's all about conquering and it's all about doing this and it's all about doing that. And like, really? Do you know what a real man is? Like, this is side notes in my notes. This is just for free for you, okay? Right? You know what's real manhood and really difficult? It's to hold down a job, marry one woman, raise kids, and then die. That's hard. Nobody else is doing that. Anybody can cycle through relationships and conquer this and do that. And then the ladies, right? I thought I could save him, (laughs) right? I thought he was dip. No, you're just as dumb as him, right? (laughs) Because all of that mascara is hiding the fact that you wanted the upper hand in the relationship, and it's about power. And I believe that when we keep asking ourselves and looking deep within our hearts why we do what we do, I think the issue of power is actually going to show itself. That's why the gospel's offensive. You know that, right? The gospel is offensive because it says, bow the knee. You submit your power. I mean, everybody's okay with Jesus being an accessory to their life. Like, add him to the dashboard of everything else in my life. Life insurance, 501K, this is great. Jesus, all right. 
But according to this dream, Jesus comes and he smashes everything else on your dashboard. So this image shows us that humanity is obsessed with power. The second thing is this. Humanity is crumbling as it's evolving. The image starts with gold at the top. And then progressively, as it gets revealed, each element is less and less valuable. And then finally, it's clay feet. Listen. If there is ever an image of humanity that I think is appropriate, it's a head of gold and feet of clay. Because think about it. I think he's also teaching us the entire storyline of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, we start in the presence of God. It's gold. It's perfect. It's the most valuable relationship that we have. And then sin enters in. And then God starts over again with Noah and Noah failed. It's the constant digression of that. One scholar puts it this way. This is beautiful. This is saying something important to contemporary readers about the pattern of human history. On the whole, history degenerates. It carries its own germ of disintegration that becomes increasingly apparent. There is no progress gene implanted in history's womb that ensures some sort of infallible upward movement. Now listen, I think we are progressing. Like, I read an article a couple of weeks ago that a guy who owns a Tesla car got a notification on his phone when he woke up, woke up in the morning and said that his brakes had been fixed through Wi-Fi. Now, that's incredible, man. Like, your brakes got fixed while you were asleep through Wi-Fi. That's profound. And then I thought as I read that, but we still kill our babies. Awesome. We're going to colonize Mars, bro. It's just 100 years from now, man. We're going to live there. And then finally, that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie is going to be true, man. It's going to be awesome, right? But the divorce rate's 50% and your marriage is about to die. Sure, we're advancing. But the human condition has stayed the same There is something broken in us. And listen, Christian or non-Christian alike, you have to admit that. You've got to agree with that. Like, sure, we're not in the medieval era, but we can't stop someone walking into a school and killing 17 kids. We can't stop half of the population dying from diarrhea from unclean water. We can't stop pornography A new pornography movie is filmed every minute in America? Come on, but we have iPhones? This image is telling us something that, yes, we are progressing, but as we are progressing, it's becoming more and more unstable, and we are unraveling because all other kingdoms will crumble, and only God's kingdom is final, which leads us to the second point. Only God's kingdom is final. If you look in verse 34, there's this stone that, that makes its way in the dream. And it's, it's supernatural. This stone, it says in verse 34, As you looked, a stone which was cut out by no human hand 
and it struck the image at its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Look at verse 35. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Daniel is saying this to King Nebuchadnezzar. Like if King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like this, he'll just cut your head off, right? And how bold is it to say to a man that rules the known world, you're going to die and your kingdom's going to fail and then there's literally going to be nothing left of it. But what is this stone? I teach you this often and let you know that The Bible is 66 books that are composed about one story. And there's one hero in that story, and it's not you. It's Christ. And this stone was prophesied all the way back at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when sin entered into God's creation... God curses the enemy and says this, And I will put enmity, war, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, there's two interesting things that I always show you about this verse. Number one, the word offspring means seed. Now, why would God say about the woman that her seed will crush the enemy's seed? Because if we go back and understand human anatomy and the reproductive situation there, women do not carry seed. But rather that it's prophesying that this child that will be born will not be anything made by human hands. And then it says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is literally what the scholars call the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. You see, Christmas was prophesied long ago, long before the Christmas story. And here's what I love about how good our God is. When sin entered in and broke everything, he didn't cast judgment first. He cast a promise, a savior to heal everything. And then fast forward all the way to the Christmas story when the angel appears to Mary, right? It's like a Jerry Springer episode, man. Right, The angel's like, you're going to have a baby. And she's like, uh, look at what it says. How will this be, Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin. Awkward. You know what I mean? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then do you know what Jesus... Like, people always say Jesus never claimed to be God. Like at Easter time, you're going to see it. Always Easter and Christmas, Time Magazine, and everybody's going to, did Jesus really, right? Because they have to do something because literally our calendar revolves around these events. So they always have to make an argument every year as to what's happening. And they say Jesus never claimed to be God or never said that those prophecies were about him. But look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 20. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. I've never seen that on a coffee cup or a sweatshirt before in a Christian bookshop. I'm going to make that t-shirt though, right? 
I fall on you, I will crush you, Jesus. Right? Because here's what people like to do. We like to make our own version of Christ. Right? I always say he's like a lost member of the Beach Boys. Some white guy, blonde hair, parted down the side, right? Man, I'll never confront you, man. Just do, right, this Jesus probably lives in Colorado or something. You know what I'm saying, right? Right? Man, I'll never, oh man, whatever feels right for you feels right for you. And whatever's true for you is true for you. And this is how we've even, like, that's the problem with the church nowadays. The gospel that is preached goes something like this. Jesus is there, and he was crucified for you. And he's hanging there, and he's lonely, and he's weeping. You are breaking Jesus' heart, and God loves you. And you're a snowflake who has fairy dust all over you. And he loves you so much. And if you don't accept him, it will break his heart. Listen, the reality is, according to the book of Revelation, that when he comes back, he'll crush you. This king, like, we want, here's the problem. In America, we were started by a country who didn't like kings, right? So we left, you know what I mean? And so now we vote, and we vote for our leader, and we have a say in everything. And the Jesus that we want is a Jesus that's a consultant, a Jesus that gives us some tips and some trades and some life hacks in your life of how to, quote, not be anxious and how to be, um, you know, proud and how to conquer and slay those giants in your life. But what he is before any of that is the sovereign ruler of the universe. As Hebrews chapter 1 says that he spoke it into be. And listen, if it's true, if the message is true and he walked out of the grave, there is no second place. There can't be. That he is a king. So listen, the stone that crushes all other kingdoms is Jesus Christ. That's what Daniel is saying. And what I love about this kingdom, literally in verse 44, we're just going to break that down like Legos. In one verse, we have four descriptions as to what the kingdom of God is like. This kingdom that Jesus is setting up, the first thing is this, it's unchangeable. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Do you know how much persecution the church of Jesus Christ has faced? It's unbelievable. It was birthed in poverty under the oppression of the Roman government. Literally every odd was against this church and this message thriving and living. But listen, you are sitting in a church. Do you know how I know God's doing something in your life? This is cool, right? You ready for this? Do you know how I know that God's pursuing you? Even those of you who are adamantly saying God is not pursuing me. Here's my argument against that. You're in church. Isn't that fun? How are you going to argue with that, bro? You know what I'm saying, right? And literally, we are here. In 2018, in Popper Bluff, Missouri, and you have your Bible open, and we are claiming allegiance to the kingdom of God. That it is literally unchangeable, but it's not just that, it's unforgettable. It will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It's what I love about the story of God. Adam and Eve, you got it. Oh, you failed. Noah, you got it. Oh, you failed. 
The Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, you got it. You failed. David, you got it. You failed. Samson, you got it. You failed. Everyone fails. And then do you know where I would love to be? If I could go back in time and witness anything, I would want to be in heaven. I would want to be in heaven when the immaculate conception happens and the angels are gathered around and everyone goes, here it goes. Here it goes because Jesus is standing there and he goes, this time it all depends on me, not anybody else. I'm not giving it to anybody else and it doesn't depend on anybody else, but here we go. And literally the Bible says that the angels were in awe as to how that happened. God, listen, the kingdom of God doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on me. This week as I was writing the sermon, I've got a picture of the founding members of Westside and it sits on a bookshelf there right by my desk. And I thought about how many pastors has this church had? I was talking to Tyler, how many worship pastors? Some of them living and some of them not. Some of them have died. I could take you to their grave. But West Side's continued on. It was so humbling for me to realize that it doesn't depend on me. I'll die and go on the ground and this church will continue because nothing is going to stop this. And the third thing is this, it's uncontrollable. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end. The kingdom of God is not something that we can control. And listen, I would venture to say this. Many of you who are Christians and you love Christ, but there's still no peace in your life, you're still riddled with anxiety and fear, it would be because you're trying to control something that's uncontrollable. You're trying to give God advice as to how your life should be ran. And you realize that throne is way too big for you to be sitting in. It's uncontrollable, but the last thing is this. It's unstoppable, and it will bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. We did this in the first service, and I do this occasionally, but I love this. Raise your hand if you yourself or someone you know has had a specific prayer specifically answered by God. Raise your hand. Raise your hand high. Raise it high. Look around. The kingdom of God is alive and it's well. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my kingdom. Do you know what that is? That's not a defensive statement. That's not us as a church going, oh man, better hold on tight. Ooh, it's tough times are coming. That's an offensive statement. We're not standing still. We are the ones advancing the kingdom of God. And to think that the kingdom of God is literally unstoppable. The band's going to come up and lead us in a time of response. But I want to read something specific to you. And I want you to listen. Because I believe that history proves true of what I'm speaking of. There was a British journalist by the name of Malcolm Mugridge. He was very, very famous. Many of you may know who I'm speaking of. But he reported in literally one of the most significant times in human history. I mean, literally, World War II, he got to see all of these things. And towards the end of his life, as he got to see empires and everything, technology and everything hit the scene, he wrote in his memoirs a story looking back called All in One Lifetime. All in One Lifetime. And this is what Malcolm Muggeridge says. We look back upon history and what do we see? 
Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and then dispersed, one nation dominant and then the other. Shakespeare even speaks of the rise and fall of the great ones with the ebb and flow of the moon. In one lifetime, I've seen my own countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song, that God who made them mighty will make them mightier yet. I have seen a crazed, cracked Austrian, Hitler, proclaim to the world an establishment of a German army that would last for a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown announce he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption of power. A murderous Jordanian brigade in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the Western world as wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than Askow, and more humane than Marcus Aurelius himself. And I have seen America wealthier in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than all the rest of the world put together so that Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime. All in one lifetime. Gone with the wind. England, now a part of a little island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankrupt. Hitler and Mussolini are dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. And America, oh America, haunted by fears of running out of the precious fluid that keeps their motorways roaring and the smog settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and of the great victories of the Don Quixotes of the media when they charge the windmills of Watergate all in one lifetime. All in one lifetime they are gone with the wind but their stands but there stands behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomats. There stands a gigantic figure of one because of whom and by whom and in whom and through whom mankind may still have peace. This person, this God-man Jesus Christ who destroys all other empires, I present to him today as the way and the truth and the life. This is this kingdom and this is this empire because look at me, all other empires will crumble because only the kingdom of God is final. And I have one question for you. What kingdom are you building? What kingdom are you building? Because you're going to come to the tables in a moment and this is the only kingdom where the king dies for you. Look at me. All other kingdoms will make you die for it. Any marriage, any job, any philosophy, any person will make you die for that significance and that identity. But on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And then he took the cup and he passed it. And he said, drink of this new covenant which is my blood and is spilled for you. What kingdom are you building today? 
Heavenly Father, we come before you, and as we come to this table, we realize it is a kingdom that is unshakable, that is unchangeable, that is unstoppable, and that is uncontrollable. This kingdom stands, and it was built by sacrifice, not from its people, but but from its own king. Oh, Jesus, there is no king and no kingdom like you. Have your way with us in this place. And today, may the stone of grace crash into all other kingdoms. And may we find peace that surpasses all understanding. We pray this all in the true king's name, in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you stand where you're at and come and partake in the table as you feel led today?